All right now, you're listening to the Real Texas Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Bronin, just a fed up taxpayer bringing you all of your Texas local and national news. Welcome to the Real Texas Radio Podcast. I am Bronin, your host. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. And if you haven't already, please, I invite you to follow, subscribe, like from whatever platform that you're tuning into. And today on the show, we are covering all local Texas issues. And I am going to kick us off with the Trump rally in Waco that occurred over the weekend on Saturday. I didn't attend. I I just read the transcripts. I read a little bit of analysis of the rally. And apparently it was decently attended with nearly 20,000 people, I believe, showed up. Waco is a reliably conservative Republican area. It's represented by Pete Sessions in Congress, who formerly represented the Dallas area until he was beaten a few cycles ago by the NFL player there, Colin Allred, the Democrat. In any case, I'm not going to spend too much time on this one, but I will say this. It seems like Trump has gotten some mojo back with all of this nonsense going on with the Manhattan DA, who I think is a real nitwit. And it seems like this guy's predecessors in the Manhattan's, the Manhattan DA's office, they reviewed this case with Stormy Daniels and the, the payoff or whatever you want to call it. They're trying to classify it as an in-kind campaign contribution, I believe, is the game here in order to get Trump sidelined and unable to run for the presidency at all. But without a doubt, any legal stuff like this, it's going to drag on. It will probably pepper the entire campaign season. And all that it has done is put Trump exactly where he thrives, which is on defense in complete and utter chaos. And it's put him back in the underdog position. It has rallied the base a bit. It has totally thrown Nikki Haley off into the abyss as if she's a serious candidate. And DeSantis, obviously he hasn't officially declared his candidacy yet, but it has certainly taken some of the spotlight off of him these last couple of weeks. Obviously, we are nearly two years out from the election. Anything can happen, but it's it's looking interesting now for Trump, and it hasn't been looking interesting for Trump for the last several months, certainly since he announced back in November. Moving right along, Houston ISD, the Houston Independent School District, is being taken over by the state of Texas. What does that mean? Absolutely nothing. Will your children be able to read in the Houston Independent School District? No, absolutely not. This has nothing to do with actually teaching children to read. Why do I harp on reading? Because if the kids can read in the school, then 
most of the problems, most of the foolishness, most of the fights, most of the serious chaotic problems that destroy a school and create a cycle of dysfunction and perpetuate it, they go away if the kids can read. But as we know, education has nothing to do with reading these days, and most kids can't read, not on a critical level, and their parents probably can't read on a critical level. And you know what? You can bring up all the excuses why, but I'm sick of hearing, oh, poverty, 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 immigration, language barrier, ESL. It's a bunch of crap. They can't read in their native language either if English is not their native language. And their parents probably can't either. And you know what? You need to teach your child to read. And if you can't read yourself... I, I don't care. You, you need to get picture books out for your child. If you have a child, your responsibility is to teach that kid to read. And if you are sending a kid to school who can read every day, that kid is going to be much more successful, obviously, right? But you're, you're not going to have to go through some of the battles that are common with kids as they get older. You won't have to put up such a fight to get the kid to do homework. You won't have to put up such a fight about the cell phone. You won't have to put up such a fight when it comes to absenteeism or the, the kid is skipping school all the time or, you, or you're getting phone calls from the teacher all the time because the kid's a discipline problem. Because guess what? They can't read, which means that they can't function and participate in school. You know... I always found it interesting how in Texas the term independent school district is used instead of public schools, or in California they favor the term unified school district. What a joke. What a laugh that is. As if we are not going to associate the schools with mediocrity or failure or dropping out if they disassociate themselves from the term public school. These are public schools. Let, let's call it what it is. It's a public school. But I've mentioned many times on the show before that my professional career started as a classroom teacher, and I taught for seven years. And maybe you're thinking, oh, that that's not very long. Maybe it's not. But you know what? The average teacher, and this is not a new statistic, but the average teacher, I think when they begin they are putting in three years and then they are burnt out or they're gone. They've switched careers, whatever the case might be. A teacher who stays in it for five years, I believe that's pretty rare as well. Most of the teachers now, you get them very young. You get them right out of college. They're in their early 20s. That was my case too, by the way. But they're not sticking around. And teaching is a career that... You know, those first five years, you're really getting your feet wet. And obviously, it's a curve, right? There are some people who are really gifted and they get it right away. And by their second year, they're in their stride. But that's not typically the case for most. And by the time that teacher is actually really developing their skills, their pers their persona, their confidence, and they're really rocking and rolling in the classroom, they're probably looking at other options, whether that is moving up to another position in the school district that's outside of the classroom or completely outside of the education world. 
In any case, there's no reading instruction going on in schools today. And the state, when it takes over and they get rid of the superintendent and they basically shuffle paper around and get some new managers in there, none of those people are going to be making or teaching your children to read. And you know what? By the time the kid is in middle school, it's really, it's late. And unless that kid really has some strong teachers, disciplinarians, or unless that kid is intrinsically motivated, they're not going to learn to read probably. You need to get your kid able to read by third grade. And that means that when that kid is two years old and three years old, they need to be jumping up and down every night. Mommy, daddy, I need you to read me a story before bedtime. That needs to be the routine until that child builds such excitement about reading that when he gets to fourth, fifth, sixth grade, he's picking up chapter books or you're reading Harry Potter together or A Wrinkle in Time or Narnia or whatever the case. In fact, you know what? That's some, that's some free advice. Do you know what that would do for poverty in this country? If everybody who is flirting along the poverty line and all of the, all of the lefty empathy articles that we read in the news and on social media, if they focus their campaign on making sure that parents are teaching their very young children to read, do you know how much easier that would make life for your teachers who we can't even get teachers in the classroom anymore? Most classrooms, most schools have such a teacher shortage, even though in the DFW area, the pay is around $60,000 per year. I think that's a little bit more, which to put that in perspective is about as much as the cops in Dallas start off at. And that's a another force that's depleted and we can't get anybody to do that job. But I am so sick of the dancing around this elephant, which, which is seems to be a favorite activity, dancing around the elephant in the United States, whether it is obesity, pre-diabetes, diabetes, COVID. We just, we're, we're so susceptible to scams and, and we just have such trouble facing what the real issue is. And when it comes to education, whether that is the Houston Independent School District or any other failing school system around the country, Boston Public Schools, actually, they have been flirting with a state takeover too. And it's the same thing. And you know what? They can throw all the crap at you that they want, that the the conditions are challenging. They've got students at every level. They've got almost 200 languages spoken in the school. Do you know what? If you learn to read in Spanish or Swahili or Portuguese or French or Arabic, that's still learning to read. And if you can read in another language and actually analyze a newspaper article or a novel, you're still growing your brain and you're still growing your intelligence and sure even if you don't know english those comprehension skills that intelligence will translate as you are picking up english so i don't want to hear that excuse either just because your parent doesn't speak english 
you can get any book in Spanish pretty much in this country. If So I, I just cannot listen to the excuses. And if you are hearing these poor excuses from other people, please don't listen to them either. You can go ahead and dismiss them immediately. All right, moving on to the next topic, and that's actually some good news. It looks like the Texas legislature is going to be providing for the taxpayers of Texas some real property tax relief, some serious property tax relief. One of the plans that is in the House is to raise the homestead exemption to $70,000 from where it is now at $40,000. That's nearly doubling the homestead exemption. I have read figures that about that that would save the average taxpayer about 350 bucks a year. I know that is what you might call if you're somebody like Nancy Pelosi crumbs, but it that's trending in the right direction. I also saw state senator Royce West actually advocating for a plan that would shave a half a cent off of the state sales tax. I I almost fell out of my chair when I saw that plan. He's definitely not a character that you associate with trying to achieve any kind of property tax relief for anybody, certainly nobody in the middle or working classes. But the rationale is the homestead exemption increase potentially and that's just one of the competing plans the senate the texas senate has another plan it looks like lieutenant governor dan patrick is favoring the senate's plan in any case i i am i'm going to take the property tax relief in whatever form i can get it i doubt that senator royce west's proposal to shave off the half a cent from the state sales tax, I doubt that's really going to get any legs. The rationale there is that if you are a renter, if you don't own property, then you're not going to be able to take advantage of any of that property tax relief, which is fair. And considering that the climate now for real estate is increasing corporatization, whether that is condominium buildings, apartment buildings, or large corporations since the Great Recession back in 08 have been particularly aggressive in acquiring single-family homes and renting them. And obviously, any kind of a trend like that, the DFW region, the third biggest metro area in the United States, is an attractive market for that kind of a system. And with that, I will segue into another topic. In the city of Dallas, the city council has been under pressure really for a number of years, but it seems like the city council in Dallas is getting close to making a decision on Airbnb regulations. So Texas, it's a very popular pilot or testing grounds for all kinds of programs. If you remember, remember all the Lime bikes and the Lime scooters and the Uber bikes that were thrown all over the city. And that was a number of years ago. They've, they've since all been taken away. But Dallas in particular, it's pretty 
freewheeling when it comes to regulations in the sense that there really aren't too many regulations. So uh, a lot of these tech startups, they will, they can get away with a lot and pretty soon they're entrenched. And that's the case with Airbnb. Now, if you are a short-term renter of Airbnb properties, that means that you are renting your property for 30 or fewer consecutive days to one person or a group of people, then you owe a 9% tax to the city of Dallas. And that's on top of, I believe that Airbnb is already collecting on behalf of the state of Texas a a tax. The problems, uh, according to the neighbors, in the single-family neighborhoods, like around the Lower Greenville area or in East Dallas, is that when when you get an Airbnb house, when it's a dedicated property in the middle of a single-family neighborhood, well, the the young white upper middle class families they really don't like it, especially if the house is hosting large gatherings like frat parties or bachelorette parties or any kind of loud music on the weekends, for example, or if there is a crowd that comes in for a big football game, another example. So it looks like the city council may be ready to ban, possibly, we'll see, any Airbnb short-term renting or, or VRBO, whatever company, in the single-family neighborhoods. Now, I have read stats, and I've mostly been tracking this story in the Dallas Morning News. I don't see it getting much coverage elsewhere, but it it looks like there are many Airbnb hosts who have not registered with the city of Dallas as they are supposed to, meaning there are potentially thousands of Airbnb listings that the city is not collecting any taxes from. I read a number of years ago, maybe four or five years ago, that Dallas was reaping about six million bucks a year from Airbnb renting. I'm sure it's more than that now with the pretty high fees that Airbnb can charge. And considering that there are I don't know, three, four thousand, it could be more, five thousand, six thousand unregistered listings. There's a lot of money out there that's not being collected. So full disclosure, I I actually do list a property on Airbnb, but I do not do short-term renting. I do not rent to anybody for 30 or fewer days. It's a, a headache. And neighbors particularly don't like it. Actually, we have restrictions in my condominium complex against it. And in fact, most condominium complexes have in place restrictions against the short-term renting, particularly the owner-occupants. They're usually not a fan of it. They don't want to see suitcases coming and going all the time, not knowing who their neighbors are, the gate code being so widely distributed is another concern, parking concerns, all kinds of potential problems can emerge, particularly if you're dealing with an absentee landlord. Uh, That's another concern. So obviously, the corporatization of real estate and renting has extended into Airbnb. And 
at one point, Airbnb was marketing itself as a mom and pop kind of a business model where you could rent out your quaint little second bedroom and, and earn a few bucks to pad your income. Whereas now there are a lot of international hosts and corporate hosts who own tons of properties. They then are subcontracting down to a, a property manager and that person is remote. They, they may not have even ever gotten eyes on the property. They certainly don't know the neighbors or care about the neighbors. And in those situations, and I understand it's very situational, so I don't want to paint everybody with the same brush, but that's where problems can really arise. Airbnb, for its part, I, I believe, has been responsive to some of these concerns. I know that they have cut down on one-night rentals for units that allow uh, many guests, like 10-plus guests, around certain holidays like New Year's Eve. Maybe they, they're barely making a, a dent on that, and that was just kind of a, a PR move to make it seem as if they're really doing something. In any case, Airbnb, it's it's still often cheaper than a hotel. For example, if you're going to New Orleans and, and if you wanted to stay anywhere near Bourbon Street or the Garden District, anything like that, Airbnb, I, I found a deal that beat the hotels pretty significantly. And I think that's still the case in a lot of cities. That said, my husband and I, a few months ago, we looked at a weekend in Austin, Texas. He has never been. And I looked into renting an Airbnb and it was, it was a fortune. And by the time we rented a car to drive down there, stayed two or three nights in an Airbnb, it was looking like it was going to be a thousand dollar weekend if we hit a few bars and restaurants and engaged in some entertainment over the weekend. It was an absolute fortune to go to Austin unless we wanted to stay considerably outside of the city. And then that would have put us in, we would have needed Uber if we were going to have a few drinks when we were out. So we ultimately nixed that plan. And a lot of that has to do with the standard cleaning fee, it seems like everybody is is getting a hundred bucks on the cleaning fee. I, I don't charge anywhere near that for a cleaning fee, by the way. But whether you have a guest staying for two nights or 21 nights, the apartment has to be clean. The sheets need to be washed right after every guest. And sure, there are some guests who are using the unit a little more gently than others, but who who is going to clean an apartment for much less than a, a hundred bucks or, or clean a whole house for less than a hundred bucks? And if you can get somebody, what kind of a job are they going to do? And for the record, I'll say this. I clean my own unit, by the way. I do my own unit. That's a, that's a way that I save a few dollars. Keeps me humble. All right, I don't think I'm going to get into another local story today. I'll wrap that up right here, and I'll get into another local story on a future episode. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Bronin. You're listening to the Real Texas Radio Podcast.